There we go. Thanks, Brian, for reminding me. We are now being recorded. Yes. Um, good morning, and welcome to North Shore Church. Welcome to Sunday School. Um, welcome to today's chapter out of Wayne Grudem's Christian Ethics. And as you guys can see on the screen, aging and death is our joyful topic for today. Let's look around here. Um, a couple younger guys in the room. The rest of us, well, yeah, yeah, well, so be it. Uh, let me... Let me start us with a short word of prayer, and we'll get to this. Lord, thank you for the morning you've already given us. God, thank you for that ability to be here. We thank you for our health. We thank you for our minds that we can go through this topic with your help. And we look to you for guidance in all that we discuss. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, uh, I've got on the top here, these are some of the questions we're going to run into today in our discussion. What are the blessings that come with aging? Uh, is it right for Christians to spend money on hair dye or cosmetic surgeries? Why is it important to have a will and other end-of-life documents? And finally, what about cremation? Just top of the notch, top of the heap discussion points this morning. But I think we're going to find out this isn't really, it isn't uh, all that bad. The first section, well, first of all, I'm going to go through his introduction here. Uh, the gradual process of aging provides frequent reminders that we are going to die. Therefore, it is appropriate to consider the topic of aging and death uh, concern, and how that topic is concerned about the issues related to the protection of life. As we grow older, it is inevitable that our bodies will grow weaker. This is true for even champion athletes. No athlete has ever failed to retire from the most competitive skill levels of the professional sports. Uh, in the midst of our lives, we begin to experience increasingly frequent reminders that death is eventually coming. Modern Western culture seeks to avoid thinking about aging and death, and some people put immense amount of time and money into attempts to hide the signs of both aging, and they want to appear younger than they really are. How should Christians approach this phase of life? The perspective of a Christian regarding aging, regarding aging and death should be far different from that of the secular culture in which we live. We do not have to fear death as unbelievers do, because Jesus came to, to earth to triumph over Satan and to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And that is from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15. So our first topic discussion is understanding aging and death. Aging and death are the result of sin. Human beings were not created to age uh, and death. Death came into this world because of Adam's sin. Uh, two, two, two texts from Scripture Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all have sinned, from Romans 5.12. And 1 Corinthians 15.21 and 22 says, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. God warned Adam that he would impose the death, a penalty of death in the case of disobedience. And, and Adam and Eve ate from the tree, the tree that God told them they shouldn't eat from. In God's justice, he pronounced this curse upon him. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. However, this penalty of death was not imposed instantly. And Adam and Eve, after they sinned, and instead they experienced it gradually as they began to age, and eventually grew old and then died. A second point about understanding death and aging is death is not a punishment for Christians. Paul affirms that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, from Romans 8.1. All the penalty for our sin has been paid by Christ on the cross. But the penalty of death no longer applies to us, neither in terms of a physical death nor a spiritual death. So there must be another reason why Christians die. And that reason is our third point. Aging and death... Sorry about that. One slide, villain. We're on point three. Aging and death are the final outcome of a fallen world. Um, in God's great wisdom, he, de- he decided that he would not apply to us all the benefits of Christ's redemptive work on the cross all at once. He chose to apply the benefits of salvation to us gradually over time. Similarly, he chose not to remove all the evil from the world immediately but to wait until the final judgment and the establishment of a new heaven and earth. From 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, 24-26. Then comes the end, when he delivered the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. <clears throat> so death remains a reality in the lives of Christians. And although death does not come to us as a penalty for our individual sins, for Christ paid for those on the cross. It does come to us as a result of living in a fallen world where the effects of sin, of where all of the effects of sin have not yet been removed. The fourth point under this understanding aging and death is that God uses the experiences of aging and death to complete our sanctification. And as we discussed above, Christians never have to pay the penalty for sin. For, for that has all been taken on by Christ. Therefore, when we do experience pain and suffering in this life, we should never think of it because as God punishing us or doing things to us for our harm. Um, the challenge that Jesus gives to the church in Smyrna could be given to every believer. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. From Revelation 2. Verse 10. Paul says that his goal in his life is that he might become like Christ. I desire that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. He thought about the way in which Jesus died and it made made him a goal for him to exemplify the same characteristics in his life. And when it came time for him to die, that in whatever circumstance he had found himself, he, like Christ, would continue obeying God trusting God, forgiving others, and caring for the needs of those around him. 
thus bringing glory to God even in his death. So, point number five, our experience of death completes our union with Christ. Um, Another reason that God allows us to experience death, rather than taking us immediately to heaven when we become Christians, is that through death we imitate Christ in what he did, and thereby we can get to experience a closer union with him. Um, Peter writes, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Next point, under understanding aging and death, obeying God is more important than preserving our own lives. If God uses the experience of death to deepen our trust in him and to strengthen our obedience to him, then it is important that we remember that the world's goal of preserving one's physical life at all costs is not the highest goal for a Christian. Obedience to God and faithfulness to him in every circumstance is far more important. That fact gave Paul the courage to go back into the city of Lystra after he had just been stoned and left for dead. Acts 14, verse 20. And then to return there again shortly thereafter, verses 21 and 22. He endured many sufferings and dangers, Second Corinthians says, and often risking his life in order to obey Christ fully. Therefore, he could say at the end of his life, with a note of great triumph, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. From Second Timothy 4, verse 6 and 7. This conviction empowered Old Testament saints to accept martyrdom rather than to sin. He also gave Peter and all the other apostles the courage when they faced the threat of death to say, we must obey God rather than men, from Acts 5, verse 29. We also read that there will be rejoicing in heaven when the faithful saints have conquered the devil by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death, from Revelation 12. Verse 11, all this to say, when we face, are faced with the choice of preserving our lives or sinning or giving up our lives and being faithful, they chose to give up their lives. They love not their lives even unto death. Even if we live in a country where there is little or no persecution now and little likelihood that we'll be martyred for our faith, it would still be good for us to fix this truth into our minds. For if we are willing to die for faithfulness to God, we will find it easier to give up on everything else for the sake of Christ as well. And that was a a highlighted portion I have in this section. Um, Yeah, if we've considered this fact of martyrdom and death, and we've placed in our minds the fact that we will not turn from our faith, even if it means protecting our own lives, we'll give up our life. That really should be a motivation for us to easier to give up everything else for the sake of following Christ. Should have us should give us some victory over some of our idols and our sins and our temptations if we think about it in the large picture of things. Um <clears throat> The next section in this chapter was called Some Blessings That Come With Aging. And I think that's a good thing to look at, blessings that come with aging, because 
as it says, our culture's figures aging is not a good thing. Aging is to be avoided at all costs. Um, the first one is an opportunity to for greater trust in Christ for effectiveness in ministry and in ordinary conduct of life. And this is this is um, from Second Corinthians twelve. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The aging process, as it causes our bodies to become weaker, provides a similar kind of opportunity for us today as we discover how Christ's power is made perfect in weakness. Second point gives us an opportunity for greater growth and holiness of life and spiritual maturity in prayer. Um, a lot of scripture in this section, and that's good because we can trust in scripture. Second uh, Corinthians four sixteen through eighteen. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting our way; our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Such inner renewal would have had many positive effects in Paul's spiritual life and should bring those benefits to our lives as well. Our inner self is being renewed day by day, and we can look forward to increasing growth in personal holiness and closeness to God in prayer as we get older. Third point, it's an opportunity to believe that God will reveal a proper response to every difficult situation. And this this also is ties back to Brian Brian led us a chapter on the lesser and the greater. And he ties this one back that as we get older we can understand that we don't always have to pick the lesser sin. An answer will be given to us that involves no sin. We won't be forced to sin. So as we get older, the older we get, the aging process provides us our own special set of circumstances, individual to each one of us. And those circumstances give us the opportunities to trust God in the midst of new and unforeseen hardships that have to be dealt with in appropriate ways. And the fact that God has a right solution for the circumstance. And then ask him for the wisdom to find it and implement it. Um, the fourth point, an opportunity to be grateful for the dignity that belongs to the physical signs of aging. And this one quite simply just gives the example of gray hair. It says, the glory from scripture, the glory of young men is in their strength. But the splendor of old men is in their gray hair. That's from Proverbs 20. Um, Proverbs saw dignity in gray hair. And he has a note here from the ESV study Bible on this verse. And it says that this verse is a concrete example of a general truth. Many of the physical evidences of old, ages have, old age have dignity and splendor of their own often representing maturity, wisdom, and holiness. So, gray hair or no hair, wrinkles. Um, age, age in general, should be bringing some dignity to us 
in some respect as others younger people look to us who are older and say they've experienced some things so there should be dignity that comes along with that now with all those good things we've got some difficulties that come with aging aging still brings difficulties and death is still an enemy um it wouldn't be right if everything I said was that the aging is just this giant, wonderful, pleasant experience because, well, it's really not. Um, it's not filled with just unmitigated blessings. Uh, yes, God can and does bring us to many of the blessings mentioned above through aging and during the process of aging. But the fact remains that death is an enemy and has not been yet fully destroyed. It will only be destroyed at the last trumpet when Christ returns. Um, again, that same verse from 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty six: The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So, if aging still has its difficulties and it isn't easy, should we use hair dye and such? Is the next question. A um, couple pages on that. Actually... What he comes to is the fact that, sure, <laughs> go ahead. Um, and he likens that in his discussion to the discussion of beauty and God's beauty and God's creation and the beauty that's in that. Um, and the fact that aging and death were instituted after the curse. They weren't the initial plan. They weren't the original plan. Um, and just as it is right to try and alleviate other results of the fall, for example, we try to alleviate, alleviate the pain in childbirth, which is a result of the curse, and we also seek to remove thorns and thistles from our farm fields and agricultural adventures, reversing the curse that was given in Genesis so it is right to in a, to attempt to alleviate at least to some extent the physical unattractiveness that may come with the result of the fall and that increases as we grow older god has put it within a, within us an instinct to delight in beauty rather than to delight in ugliness and while the physical beauty of a rebellious sinner can be deceptive and dangerous there are several biblical examples of godly delight in the physical beauty of god's righteous people and he has seven verses listed here. I'm not going to go through all of those. And in addition, God's temple in his city is described as beautiful. And God himself is magnificent in his beautiful beauty. Psalm 27.4 and Isaiah 33.17. Therefore, it is not inherently wrong for human beings to desire beauty or to desire to be attractive, handsome, or beautiful in appearance. However, there is a danger for all of these things. Um, physical beauty in this age and things are not always as they outwardly seem. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain from Proverbs 31.30. Therefore, while there is value and goodness in physical beauty, it should not be the main focus of our efforts to be attractive to others, which should instead be, our focus should instead be the excellence of our character and the good works that we do for the Lord and other people. But if this caution is heeded, and people do not place excessive emphasis on physical beautiful beauty 
or wastefully spend too much money pursuing it, then it seems that some efforts to improve physical attractiveness can be morally good, but optional choices. And then he gives some pretty straightforward ones, which I hadn't thought about. For example, getting a haircut. You don't have to cut your hair, but if everybody went around and never cut their hair, we wouldn't consider that beautiful <laughs> or even maybe attractive. Combing your hair, brushing your teeth, shaving for men. These are all ways that we alter our natural appearance of our bodies, but they seem to be good and wise things to do. So similarly, if a person can afford it without neglect or distorting their other relationships and stewarding their responsibilities, if they wish to do things, taking similar actions and improving their personal physical appearance seems to be a morally good thing. And this also can apply to cosmetic actions. If a person can't afford it and wishes to do so, he thinks... It is a morally good, although optional, choice to use hair dye to color one's hair or to get braces to straighten crooked teeth. And then he goes on to say in Arizona where he lives, uh, visits to the dermatologist are quite frequent and to remove dark spots and skin blemishes is a common thing. First to, to prevent skin cancer, but also for cosmetic reasons. And he says that all of this is certainly not a wrong thing to do and a moderate effort to improve your appearance is acceptable but a pursuit of a perfect body or a continual desire to disguise one's age can easily become an idol turn our heart away from turn our heart away from God and the things he wants us to focus on and he ends this section with the principle of sufficiency of scripture should be applied here and he has this verse why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you? Why do you despise your brother? We all, we will all stand before judgment seat of God, and that is his his point to say that in this matter of how much we do or don't do to approve our physical appearance, we can't judge someone else's actions because we don't know where they're coming from. What might be vanity to one person or a complete obsession in their physical appearance may not be for the person who is having cosmetic surgery or dyeing their hair. It may just be a simple act that the way men shave to look clean shaven because we feel it looks better or a woman who dyes her hair may have the exact same result. It doesn't mean it's vanity. It, doesn't, it just means this is how she's taking care of herself or braces or... Cosmetic surgeries. Everything in that section is is tied to optional results. These are optional things. You don't have to dye your hair. You don't have to not dye your hair. It's optional. And any physical changes to your body cosmetically, and he ties it a lot to, to your status, your wealth, um, if it doesn't financially burden you, if it doesn't affect your ability to give to the church, the ability to minister to other people, your ability to live this life, then then if it's your choice to do it, you can go ahead and take whatever procedures you feel is right. 
So I know that's kind of a sticky subject. But how should we feel about and think about our own death and the death of other people? Point one, we should not be fearful. Um, According to the New Testament, we should view our own death not with fear, but with joy at the prospect of going to be with Christ. Paul says, We would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, in 2 Corinthians 5.8. And they said that when he was in prison, with the possibility of execution. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. From Philippians 1, 21 and 23. So, believers need to have no fear of death. The scripture assures us that not even death will separate us from the love of God in Christ. That takes care of the fear. Now, is it right for us to experience both grief and joy when a loved one dies? Um, sometimes Christians might wonder if weeping and expressing sorrow when a friend or relative dies shows a lack of faith or if we should just be strong and restrain our emotions. Jesus himself provided the answer by his sorrow when he came to the home of Mary and Martha, whose brother Jesus' friend, Lazarus, had just recently died. We read that Jesus wept in John eleven thirty five. He felt sorrow and pain that Lazarus had experienced He felt sorrow at the pain that Lazarus had experienced and sorrow at the loss of his fellowship with Lazarus and the sorrow at the fact that Mary and Martha had lost their brother. No doubt he also felt deep grief at the fact that death existed at all in God's creation and among his people. He expressed sorrow so openly that the Jewish people who were watching exclaimed, See how he loves him in verse 36. And there are other examples in Scripture as well. As Stephen was being stoned for his faithful witness to Christ, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. From Acts 28, verse 21. Paul did not tell the Thessalonian Christians to not grieve at all over those who had died, but instead he wrote to them, that you you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. And he was also instructed that said that the Thessalonians were not to grieve in the same way, with bitter despair as an unbeliever, those who have no hope. This indicates the sorrow that we feel at death of believers is also mingled with hope and joy. And point three on this section, sorrow at the death of unbelievers. When unbelievers die, the sorrow we feel is not mingled with joy of assurance that they have gone to be with the Lord. This sorrow, especially regarding to those to whom we've been close, is very deep and real. Paul himself, when thinking about some of his Jewish brothers who had rejected Christ, and no doubt thinking about their eternal destiny, said these words, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish I could that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Yet, it also must be said that we often do not have absolute certainty that a person has perished, a person has persisted in refusal to trust in Christ all the way to their point of death. 
The awareness of one's impending death often will bring about genuine heart-searching on the part of a dying person. Sometimes he or she may recall the words of Scripture or the words of Christian testimony that were heard long ago. And the dying person may come to genuine repentance and faith. Although we may not have time to know or have certain assurance of this, that it has happened, but it is also good to realize that in some cases it may have, but we do not have absolute knowledge that those whom we have known as unbelievers have persisted in their unbelief until their death. In some cases, we simply do not know. However, if after a non-Christian has died, it would be wrong to give any indication to others that we think that that person has gone to heaven. This would simply give misleading information or false assurances to the family and diminish the urgency of the need for those who are still alive to trust in Christ. In such circumstances, it is often helpful to speak of, with genuine thankfulness about the good qualities that we noticed in that individual and the way that we were encouraged by some of those things and actions in that person's life. For example, even though Saul had become an evil king and had pursued David and tried to kill him many times, once Saul died, David spoke publicly about Saul's good things. Your glory, O Israel, is slain in high places. How the mighty have fallen. Saul and Jonathan, they are swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Your daughters of Israel weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously, luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. So David was expounding on Saul's good characteristics. That was a, a section on how to think and feel about the death, our death and others. We've got two more to go. Preparing for death. This gets a little more practical, as in things we should be doing. The importance of having a will in preparing end-of-life medical directives. Um, from scripture we see that Paul hoped to be able to act in a way that would honor Christ in his life and also at the time of his death from Philippians 1 verse 20 as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death and following Paul's pattern it should be the goal of every Christian to be able by God's grace to die in a way that honors Christ and to do all to the glory of God. Another principle from Scripture that's relevant to this is the golden rule. Matthew seven twelve, For whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law of the prophets. If you would like your loved ones to have a prepared will and advanced directive regarding their medical care for you when they face death, it's only right that you do the same for them. There are two important legal documents that will help a person die in a way honoring Christ and that will help those who are left behind to, to go through this the easiest. The importance of the will is the first one. It makes the process of processing of your estate far simpler and faster after you die. Um... It will possibly save your loved ones additional legal expenses that they would occur if you die without a will. 
They'll give you the opportunity to decide how your assets should be divided, including any gifts you might want to make to your church or other charities. And rather than that, your assets may divide it, be divided automatically according to a formula devised by someone in a courtroom. In addition, with couples with underage children should clearly make known their wishes regarding who will gain custody of their children if both parents should die suddenly. Um, oh, rapid fire go through here. Ten of the top reasons that this findlaw.com website gives for having a will. You decide how your estate will be distributed. You decide who will take care of your minor children. You avoid a lengthy probate process. You minimize the estate taxes that will have to be paid. You can decide who will wind up all the affairs of your state. You pick an executor who is going to make those decisions after you pass. You can disinherit individuals who would otherwise inherit. <laughs> yeah, well, we're practical here, right? Um, to make gifts and donations, you can specify those. To avoid greater legal challenges. If you die without a will, part or all of your estate may pass to someone who you did not intend, and this may involve a large court battle. Um, you can change your mind if your life circumstances change. This is a statement that once you make a will, it's not set forever in eternity. You can go back and amend that. Um, and the tenth reason they give is that tomorrow is not promised. Procrastination and, unwill and an unwillingness to accept the fa fact that death is a part of life are common reasons why people don't do wills. We cannot know the day of our death, and it is right to make appropriate preparations when we are able to do so. And the second point is this advanced medical directive. It can save your family members much agony and painful disagreement over what you might want regarding the care at the end of your life. Um, he suggests that it is wise to sign a durable medical power of attorney document designating who is authorized to make medical decisions on your behalf if you are unconscious and unable to make these decisions for yourself. He explains, in a society prone to see legislation and litigation as a solution to personal and social problems, the durable power of attorney concept is much preferred to the living will. The durable power of attorney places the emphasis on a relationship of trust and understanding between a patient, a family member, and a physician. And such is a climate for crucial and for and such a climate is crucial for preserving the proper interest of both the patient and the medical profession. So, thereby, the biblical principles of doing unto others as you would have them do unto you, and seeking to die in a way that honors Christ, provides a strong argument for preparing an advanced medical directive stating your precise wishes regarding your end-of-life care especially in the situation where there is no reasonable hope of recovery and extraordinarily and highly expensive means would be necessary just to prolong the process of dying. And there is another chapter in this Christian ethics that we haven't gone through yet, and it's titled Euthanasia. So he does treat that subject in another complete chapter on its own.
Um, and one last wonder. Okay, is cremation an acceptable alternative to burial? And I have heard some discussion on this lately, actually. Um, the Bible does not give any explicit commands about how we should treat a person's body after death. However, there are several narratives, examples of persons' bodies being treated with dignity and respect up to and including the time of burial. Um, some is valiant men of Israel ranked their, risked their lives to rescue the body of Saul and his son from the Philistines to give them a decent burial. And also from 1 Kings 13.24, the old prophet who lived in Bethel traveled and found the body of the man whom God, man of, man of God who had been killed by a lion and whose body was being guarded by the lion. And he took the body and gave him a decent burial. And in the New Testament, the disciples of John the Baptist also rescued his dead body and gave it a proper burial. So this, these examples show a pattern of respecting a person's dead body with dignity and respect. However, there are many very ways and cultures to show respect for a person who has died and to honor their memory. So therefore, he cannot say that cremation is inappropriate or wrong. Although he does state it would not be his personal preference. Our bodies are eventually going to deteriorate anyway. And cremation just vastly accelerates that process. Um, he does give a couple arguments now for why he wouldn't choose cremation. He says traditional burial of one's body in a casket has the advantage of giving a more visible expression of our hope of the resurrection of the body from that very spot in the ground when Christ returns. And he also cautions again against in making what he considers another mistake of spending an excessive amount of money on a coffin, perhaps out of a hope that you might guard against that decay that would happen to your body or gain assurance that you've treated this person exceptionally well in their death when maybe you didn't treat them that well in their life. Um, and then he quotes John Piper. In John Piper's argument, he also uh, argues for burial, not cremation, although he ends with his opinion, burial is preferable, but not commanded again. doesn't say you have to be buried. But he is, in John Piper's argument, he's, his last statement is, I am encouraging churches to, churches to cultivate a Christian counterculture where people will expect a simple, less expensive funeral and burial, and where we may all pitch in so that the Christian's burial is not a financial hardship on anyone. And because of the biblical pointers and the additional reason above, I'm arguing that a God-centered, gospel-rooted burial is preferable to cremation. Not commanded, but preferable, because it is rich with Christian truth that will become clearer and a clearer witness as our society becomes less and less Christian. Finally, in this chapter, the last couple sentences, for those who have been cremated, however, Christ will gather their ashes from wherever they have been scattered. And from them, he will create a new resurrected body that will never grow old or weak and will never die. 
Christians who decide to use the process of cremation for their loved ones can take care in the funeral ceremony and make clear to those in attendance that they are still hoping and planning on the future resurrection of this person's body from those ashes. And that is this chapter on death and dying. I don't have any questions prepared for you guys. How are we feeling? Go ahead, John. Um, does he talk at all about do not resuscitate? No. Okay. No. No. The only uh, statement he has in this one is on that medical directive and the exorbitant and extraordinary, ex- extraordinary measures to slow the process of dying. Carefully worded. The individual is dying. It's just we can give them another day if we do all of this or something to that effect. But no, I, I'm thinking euthanasia may cover some more of that, but I don't know. I haven't read that chapter. Um, I think it's very important to have all those documents in order to have that done. I mean, especially at our age, we have done all that. Mm-hmm. We are preparing and we have it done. And it's just like, you know, we are all going to die. And mm-hmm. I think it's just a wonderful thing to have all that taken care of so that the family is not left with those decisions and they have to do all that. That's the do unto others yeah. as you would have them do unto you. Dying, dying well, as he says. Yeah. Well, it's not that. It's, I mean, it's definitely a piece for you guys, but it's a piece for your family too. Right. Exactly. I, mean, I, yes. I mean, I know my parents have all that stuff mm-hmm. in place too. And it, I mean, even now, like, they're still alive, obviously. Right. But like, that's, I know it's just already a burden that's lifted from me. Yes. It's like, yes. I don't have to yes. wonder right. what they want. Know, like they don't want, and so yeah. it really is. Yeah, that's what our kids said too. Thank you. You know, at first mm-hmm. it was like, oh, like no one wants to do it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. It's a process to go through. Yes. it is. Yeah, it's a huge gift. It is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. as someone, my mom didn't yes. have everything um, lined up. I mean, we kind of knew what she wanted, but yeah. it was so fast, and yeah. was hoping for longer. But yeah, it's it's a lot uh-huh. <laughs> that you have to figure out, and a lot of paperwork. Right away, as the cheapest coffin we could get was like five thousand, six thousand dollars. So yeah, I get that he's like, don't spend a lot. Like you can spend up to like fifteen, twenty grand on a coffin. Like this, and that's not even the burial plot and the headstone mm-hmm. it, and the service itself. It's very pricey. Um, I I can add to that. My parents gave. <laughs> I don't know when they told us, my myself, my sister, but they're like, you know, your dad and I, we've built our coffins. <laughs> so they do woodwork. They do woodworking as a as a side thing, and I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Um, they're like, well, they're they're in the back. They have a little side storage shed. They're like, they they had them. They built their own 
pine boxes. <laughs> Actually, I think cedar. I think they built cedar boxes. But and then they. This is a little different, but they aren't obviously scared of thinking about their death. They're not afraid of their death. They're they're not ignoring the fact that they're going to die. They didn't want to spend five thousand dollars on. But there's still legal stuff. I think there's still a vault. There's the, the coffin has to go in another box, and you can't get away from that. But they they did it did the work, and they have their own coffins made, and they're they're wrapped up. And I, I says, well, who's who's is who's? You know, I'd have to know this. Like, do they have their names on them? And, and I believe the answer was no. They're both the, they're the same. They're, but they did send them out to somebody who does upholstery who. Like upholstered a lining in them. I mean, but they're simple boxes. I actually haven't seen them. <laughs> like, do you want to? See? I'm like, no. They're well, they're all they're wrapped. They're like shrink wrapped, like you would for like something to storage. Because you know, they're not planning on using them right away. <laughs> but that was a that was a nice. I was like, okay. But it is good. I they've got this all covered. It's it's all covered and it's it's inevitable. Death is going to happen unless Christ returns before we die. Um, that's, that's one reason why uh, me my best directive is to be cremated because you know uh, I had a cancer spell. Elizabeth had a cancer spell, and with that, it's extremely hard to get life insurance. And with my diabetes and everything else, life insurance is very expensive. So at the end, which, which you know, if you don't have a means to pay for it, I most definitely don't want my family to go in debt to bury me. Mm-hmm. So, all right. If that's Looks like that's enough conversation. I'm, I'm sorry, but it, uh, if we just, you know, we all, we're all going to die. That's unless God, you know, Christ returns. But, but we do die to a new birth, basically. Uh, everlasting life with Christ. So um, death for us can be mixed with joy as we know that where we're headed, where our eternity will be spent. In there. Let me close in prayer. God, I thank you that you've given this information to us in Scripture, that you've told us what to expect, and you've given us instructions on how to go through and to live this life and how to, to go out of this life in death. God, we just pray that you continue to, to guide us I pray for your blessing on the rest of this morning, on our time together in worship and prayer and together as we all meet. Lord, I pray that we would just honor you and worship you and give you that glory that you are due. And we just ask for your blessing on the rest of this time. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.